Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction. It is a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I'm Ben Myers and joined with none other than the one and only Steve Cameron. He's I'm back. back. He's I'm not back. sick. He's not dealing I wasn't with sick. I was troublesome be- clients that he has to <laughs> beat down in the back room. You Listen, know, I, uh, it was sad. I, was, I listened to the two episodes you did without me and I'm not going to lie. I was quite uh, well, first of all, I had a hard time not jumping in and interrupting you. So that was that was painful. <laughs> You're trying to interrupt the uh, recording times. of the I of also the didn't like in the rapid fire that the, the guys actually stuck to five words or less. That really bothered me. I wanted to pry <laughs> so bad. So, um, but no, Ben, you're you're the fearless leader, and you uh, you. He got us through two episodes without me, with through. no banter. I got us through two episodes. And uh, and then you also decided to start some funds with 0% returns. And <laughs> you, you and Alex just went on this tangent. I was like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. No, this is never going to work. I know the, nothing. The, I know nothing about financing. And the, com- uh, the commercial retail fund where every where we do nice things for people and the investors get no return <laughs> no on their return. capital. It sounds no great. Return. No return. They just like Fantasy they just life. like cool re- retail. It's just the cool retail fund. Right? I like, I like I'm, I'm, we'll we'll crowdsource <laughs> it from every doink on Twitter that's ever complained about an ANW or a pet value. There you go. They have to put in at least a couple dollars into yeah, the they put uh, hundred grand funky in the, and they don't fund. get their money back and see how they like it. <laughs> They just never get the retail. Yeah. We just say it's like a hundred and fifty year fund. You'll get it at yeah. the end. Uh, so anyways, I love it. anyways, uh, we went on a tangent there. And uh, and but we do want to talk about a group that sponsors this show. Tell and me that, about them. Tell me group, about them. They're called the Plus Group. They are comprised of five distinct companies: RN Design, SRN Architects, Salesfish Sales Software, Kool Aid Studios, and Studio Uno ID, offering services in marketing, architecture, interior design, and real estate software. Their mission. You know what? It is simple to revolutionize the real estate industry through efficiency, innovation, and quality while adding value to the client experience. For more information on the Plus Group or any of their five companies, please visit theplusgroup.ca. Wonderful, Ben. Wonderful. You know, I've been, uh, as you know, I have a one year old. You have Turning a one year old? Next week. Yeah. And uh, I've been reading lots of stories to him. Nice. Lots of books. Every nice. time I read the books, I'm like, oh, this is how Ben got so good that's, at reading the intros. That's how I got good at reading, <laughs> just reading lots of kids' books. So and, let me read uh, today's, uh, the intro for today's guest. We're very excited to have uh, Ramsey Shaheen on the show from Cache Homes. He holds a Bachelor of Engineering from the University of Toronto and worked as Development Manager of the Orlando Division of Pulte Homes, the third largest residential home builder in the United States. Ramsey joined Cache Homes in 2008, previous, previously holding the title of Director of Development and Vice President. In September of this year, he was named President of Cache, a low-rise developer and builder with communities across southwestern Ontario. We are very excited and honored to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you, guys. Excited to be here. Not a typical afternoon for me, so uh, we'll see how this goes. Yeah, it's, we're going to grill you. We're going to grill you. So, uh, well, actually, the first the first question we did not give you in advance, but uh, we want, but, but we understand that you studied robotics and automation, and so with that background, how did you end up in real estate and not in charge of uh, creating the next? AI-powered cybernetic organism? It's uh, it's a good question. Uh, not a lot of people know that I, I did study mechatronics engineering. <laughs> so, How did you uh, find that out? Yeah, that's a, that's, <laughs> Got a that's, good analyst, man. That's tough, but that's, that's good, good. good that's research. Good. But uh, no, so I, I studied mechanical engineering at the University of Toronto 
Um, and when you get to a certain stage, I think it's your third year, you get an opportunity to branch off into specialization. Uh, you can do aerospace, computer. Um, I happened to cho choose an electronics option, uh, which at the time was a specialization in robotics and automation. Uh, probably because of my dad's background, and that's really why I pursued engineering at the time uh, to begin with. Um, and then, you know, after I graduated, I realized, you know, this, this I was not going to be your typical engineer um, designing, although I did intern at Magna during my third year as my co-op. Um, but really, I just always had a passion for real estate, for land specifically. Uh, after I graduated, um, I wanted to kind of get out from underneath my family's shadow, my dad's shadow. And Was your uh, dad a builder? My dad was never a builder. He did dabbled in real estate, but he, yeah. was, he was an engineer uh, okay. in, in manufacturing, works for a large uh, or ran a manufacturing facility for a large furniture manufacturer in Canada. In Toronto? Did you guys grow up in Toronto? Born and raised in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, went, you know, studied my whole life in Toronto and um, ended up wanting to pursue real estate. Couldn't find an opportunity here. Was excited about the opportunity of leaving home and uh, working outside of... Uh, you know, live, living abroad for a few years. My girlfriend, who's now my wife, was studying law. She was she moved to Michigan. Wow. So I uh, took the opportunity to go down to Florida and, and learn the uh, land acquisition, land development business with a large national home builder. So and, and that kind of set the stage for me. And how, how did that opportunity present itself? Because that's not something that knocks at everyone's door. Well, yeah, that, so 2005, Florida was going through an unreal unreal real estate boom, right? Like yeah. these guys could not get lots on the ground fast enough. They were selling houses like crazy. Uh, for the most part, they were merchant builders getting into development. <coughs> so they had acquired a lot of land and they needed the horsepower to deliver lots to their home building operations. Uh, so Pulte happened to be based out of Michigan. Okay. My wife was in law school in Got Michigan. Or my girlfriend at the time was in law school at Michigan. Ended up getting recruited out of their corporate head office in Michigan for their Central Florida division. So I took that opportunity uh, to check it out. Wasn't sure how, how it was gonna go. Uh, fell in love with it. Like we were, you know, we were treated like rock stars back then because they needed they needed the help, right? They needed the development expertise to get um, to get these lots delivered and, and uh, to keep up with- So they actually wanted housing. <laughs> they wanted housing and- What a, uh, what a concept, I bet. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, the, the the dynamic was so much different back then. With obviously the you know with everything they went through on the financial side. So I was there for for three years. Um, so by the time I left, there were obviously cracks in the market. Um, you left just at the right time, eh? You know, yeah. So I I did get to see a little bit towards the tail end of two thousand and seven. You could start to see the cracks in some parts of the country, specifically like Vegas. Arizona, some of those markets, but mm -hmm. definitely by the time I had left, like I had met Desi and actually I'd met Desi and Mina for the first time in Orlando at the National Home Builder Show. Really? Wow. So that's where the first time I met huh. them, we were hooked up, we were introduced. Randomly or someone said you should meet this? Yeah, no, I was, I was looking to, to relocate back to Toronto. Okay. My, yeah. my, uh, Tanya, my, um, my wife now was, was graduating at that time and I was Kind of considering is going she back from Toronto home. too. She's born and raised in Toronto okay, as well. So studied here, here, but did her law degree right. in Michigan. But um, so it was good timing for me to to come back. We were starting to shed jobs in Orlando because the writing was was oh. on the wall, and they were sponsoring me at the time. So it was good timing from that standpoint, and then it was good timing personally because 
I had to uh, make a personal decision with respect to settling down somewhere. So yeah, I, I put well. a note here. I thought maybe you met a girl online and that's how you moved back to Canada. Yeah, so. yeah, no, that would be a good one. But uh, <laughs> and also there's a note in here saying that maybe you're on a trip to Disney and that's how you end up in Orlando. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where he comes up with this stuff. <laughs> I'm just I got theories. I got, I got theories. theories. You know, you yeah. look at the data and you come up with the theories. So it so. was funny because it was it was probably good timing here as well because. Like, I think the financial crisis occurred September, October 2008 when when things really hit the fan. And so if I, you know, if I hadn't met Desi and Mina when I did in early 2008 and that decision had been postponed a little later, you know, that could have probably not played out the way we had all expected. Even hitch, hitchhiking yeah. back. So. Yeah, because yeah. I came back and I'm like, you know, by the fall, I was like, why did I, why, why did I come back here? Things, <laughs> things were, uh, yeah. were, you know, pretty touch and go. It didn't last very long for us. Obviously, in 2009, yeah. things came back pretty strong. But yeah. mm-hmm. there was a period there where, um, where nobody knew kind of how that story was going to yeah. end. So I, uh, I don't know if you know that I, I worked in Dallas for a while after I graduated and, uh, and I tracked the real estate housing market in the Dallas Fort, Fort Worth area. So I know Pulte, obviously they were, a, they were a big developer down there. It, uh, it always shocks me, you know, people don't, you know, understand the, the major differences. So when I tracked the real estate market, this is again, almost 20 years ago, 95% of all new developments were single detached homes on 40 foot lots or greater. And some of these developers would have 20 model homes. <laughs> sitting there for people to walk through 20 and they might even have 25 uh, or 30 spec homes that could be purchased and moved in within, you know, 30, 60 days. So just a completely different uh, to market. Tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, your experience in, in, in Florida versus Ontario and the kind of the development environment. Yeah, I think probably the biggest different on biggest difference on the development side um, is related to the policy and the entitlements process. Um, obviously here in, in Southern Ontario, our provincial policy is very unique as well. Geographically, we're constrained to the South by the lake, to the North by the green belt. And planning policy is, is very restrictive with respect to where you're able to build. In Florida, I think, uh, when I was down there, somebody said to me, it's, you know, at the municipality, it's, it's your God given right to go bankrupt. So it's really in your <laughs> court with respect to where you want to build. If you're building in these remote areas or you decide to place a bet in somewhere that, um, you know, may, that may not be appealing or you, you can't ultimately be successful, that's your call. Now, as it relates to the, to the process um, of, of securing those entitlements, you know, a lot of the same things. You've got your water management district, you've got your um, environmental uh, authorities, you've got your your tier one municipalities and your, and your, your second tier counties or regions. So, you know, that process is, is fairly similar. Um, but, but I think that's probably the, the biggest difference is with respect to the land supply. And I mean, obviously we have a vast land supply, but you know, the entitlements as it relates to where you can build and their planning policy is much different. The other thing is, you know, the way they, the way they proceed with respect to their development. So a lot of the infrastructure in the U.S., like to your point, is front-ended. So we'll, you know, the, the how they finance these projects is a little different. They have the, what, what's called these CDDs, community development districts, where they create basically a tax base for some of these communities that are so large and master plan that they are able to front end a lot of the infrastructure that's required. So whereas when we do it, um, it, it's typically progresses with with the development, right? So we pre-sell, we put a portion of the infrastructure in, and as we continue to build out the community, we, we add to the infrastructure. Over there, it's 
they, they almost front end everything. They kind of build it and they will come type of mentality. Wow. Um, so they do have some financial vehicles that are, that are a little bit unique to, to the way we fund our developments and our back DC background studies. And obviously um, in the front ending on behalf of the private developer as well. Uh, so that's, that's pretty unique. Um, and I think from, from the capital side on the acquisition side, you know, a lot of these guys are multinational or, or national uh, public firms. And so the way they finance their deals is a little bit different. Um, they do have, a lot of them are, their land is off balance sheet. So they utilize their capital for retailing or for selling. So that's why you see the model homes. Um, so those, I think, are some of the key differences on the development side. I've spent some time in the last few weeks, last few months. I was in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. I was in Miami. I spent some time in Denver. We've been doing research as to you know the possibility or what it would look like for us to scale our business to the south. And it's quite it's way different in terms of like how they run their business. One thing I've noticed too, from a financing perspective is everyone uses a broker. There's not a lot of direct lender relationships. Like here, if oh, we yeah. want to do a huh. deal together, we'd, we'd go for lunch and we'd talk and he'd get to know me and vice versa. They're like, they've got a broker out of Houston. If they're building in Dallas, they have a broker in Houston and the money's coming from Seattle. It's, it's just like, it's, it's very disjointed. It's not as personal. Like I told some of these builders I met in my, at this conference in Miami, that, you know, a couple of my borrower, you know, like they're my buddies. I know their kids. They came over for dinner on the weekend. They were blown away. They're like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Like, <laughs> there's not like a partnership. Like, I look at it as a partnership here. Yeah, they, even even on the guarantee side, when you look at those loans, there's not a lot of loans that are guaranteed or they, they don't like to guarantee loans yeah, they don't. Uh, in the U.S. No pre-sales, no guarantees. At least like, the I, private developers, yeah. right? Like, I was in Manhattan and these guys are building like 80-story condos. They're $2 billion total project costs. They've got maybe 20% pre-sales. They've got a, an, an A lender or a senior lender in for 60%, then a MES lender in for like $600 million as a, as a, as It's a, all non-recourse. It's all non-recourse with yes. no pre-sales. And I'm just like <laughs> shaking out. Like, yeah, it, that's a huge, huge it's difference. Crazy. Even the VTB side, like here, a lot of our deals, when we acquire them are, you know, there's, there's a portion of it that's financed by the vendor. Most of our transactions, at least on the land side, especially prior to approvals being in place, right. like there's no such thing in the U.S. Right, really. Yeah, they're that. all cash deals for the most part. Interesting. Um, or a lot of the builders, um, the national guys will option land, which yeah. is more common there. Yeah. So, or, or the other thing I saw, more so in um, Manhattan, because of the prices and the costs were just out of control, they're doing 99 or 199 year land leases. So you're not actually buying the land, you're just taking a, you're renting it <laughs> and you're building on top of someone else's land, which I, I guess from you're the, just- from, from the municipality or from no, the actual from, owner? From the vendor. Wow. Yeah. And and I mean, you're just pushing down the problem, you're pushing the problem down the court to someone else, to the next generation. But I mean, it's it's like the, the fundamentals of the economics just don't make any sense at the prices that they would have to put the land in at. So I, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I don't think in the next 18 months, but if we see that in like the core of Toronto sometime in the next 10 years, maybe sooner. There's, uh, you know, I was just talking to a lender just a second ago uh, and, you know, it blows my mind that people are, you know, <laughs> in this industry are going and spending 40, 50, 60 million dollars on a piece of land and uh, planning a 75 story tower that requires 99 percent of those units to be sold to investors that are 400 to 600 square feet. Mm -hmm. And those uh, lenders want to and those buyers want to make a 20 percent return before it closes. And uh, and uh, and rents are don't cover the cost. I know. I know. <laughs> it's interesting times. And, anyway, that's, and that's the reason we haven't built a condo yet. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so actually, that's a perfect yeah. segue yeah, into yeah. who is who is Cashier Homes. Tell us a little bit about uh, the organization. Uh, so the organization was founded in 1981 uh, by Anthony Ocello. He started building uh, custom homes for um, individuals on a on a cu- custom basis. Eventually, evolved into um, building estate style communities, um, executive style communities, uh, and then ended up being a merchant builder effectively. So uh, building out, buying lots and building out master plan communities within the GTA. Uh, So that's probably when Desi and and Mina joined in the early, early nineties and kind of evolved the organization to more of a production home building company. Uh, but mainly buying lots from 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 the larger developers in the city, uh, that the writing was on the wall that that was was going to change, you know, at some point where those lots wouldn't be available to them for sale. So Desi had the foresight of um, bringing in the development in house, right? So when I joined Desi in two thousand eight, my mandate was to uh, effectively you know build our land portfolio, but to uh, to deliver or manufacture lots for our home building operation. You know, his expertise was, was, was retailing, marketing, selling, designing, and building homes. And so my mandate was, was on the development side originally. And that took us really, you know, a good five to 10 years to really prime the pump. Um, and, and really only now are we really hitting our stride with respect to um, really trying to become a best in class, fully integrated, uh, residential developer uh, and production home builder. And we've expanded our geographic region. So there's kind of been, you know, several reinventions along the way, but um, but I think we've, we've got to a point now where we're, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll, we'll close around seven, 800 homes next year. So, wow, um, seven, 800. Yeah, wow. yeah. It was, That's, it's been a, so, so tell me, I'm interested because these, you, you said 1981, was sort of when the company starts. Had twenty years of and eighties and nineties, and then the last twenty years, the business has changed fundamentally from today versus. Well, first of all, even the last fifteen years, a lot of the loans that we used to do were low-rise residential servicing, like like servicing of the lots. And I assume in the late nineties and early two thousands, there was there was like a delineation between like either you're a developer, you're a builder, you weren't both. You'd either service lots and then you'd sell your lots to a builder and if you're a builder you would just buy these service lots and and you've you've probably been through the cycle of seeing both where you where i think and you can correct me but i am curious where the profit just didn't make sense to only service all of it ended up being on the construction and the sale of the house when did that sort of change like when was when 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 did everybody go from being a a developer to a builder developer yeah, so we were never, you know, we were always a builder and then became a developer, right? right? So Tony Ocello started because everyone sort of interchanges those two words being the same thing, but yeah, no, historically we, they're not. Well, we yeah, we went through like we almost went from builder to developer and then back to being a developer builder. So <laughs> yeah. um, because it took some time to get to a point where we could build an efficient uh, production home building operation, but it, it's a good point. I think like the the profit margin of a developer and builder have kind of merged. Um, and, and, you know, it, it just depends. A lot of it has to do with like in our portfolio now, we still have service lot deals where we've bought lots from developers yeah, yeah. and, the, you know, the majority of our portfolio now is, is, uh, you know, master plan communities that we're in the process of developing, approving, uh, kind of from start to finish. So we, we still have uh, a bit of both. And I think, 
you know, there, there's, there's merit to both types of deal structures. Uh, it just, it just really depends on the, the risk profiles are much different, obviously, because if you buy lots from a developer and, and the, and, you know, the market's not there when you go to market, you've obviously got to meet your commitments to the developer and you, you know, you don't have mm-hmm. sales. Whereas if you're developing the land yourself, you can kind of just park it until the market comes back, assuming, right. you know, you can carry it. Uh, but I would, I would say kind of in the, in the late two thousands, it became pretty, it started to become pretty obvious that if you weren't going to manufacture your own lots, mm. like some of the larger guys did, you know, including yeah. Mattamy, yeah, yeah. um, it was going to be a challenge to, to create the scale necessary to be a production home builder. And I think that's more evident today than yeah. ever. You should see this, the number of service land sales or service lot sales would go down and down and down yeah. and down until well, there was almost the like, lots. there was almost like nothing, uh, available at all in yeah, like was, any market. Right? Well, yeah. So. MCAP used to issue that, that lot value yeah, report every yeah, you know, yeah, twice yeah. a year. We yeah. all used to look at it and say, yeah. okay, these are the value of lots, but yeah. Today, you don't see lots transacting that often. It's very much a, a function of the retail value of the home, right? And then you obviously try to delineate your lot cost, your building cost, and uh, and your margin. But I think today, they're very much, they're combined. Like we, we when we underwrite our deals now, those, those we really only have one profit center. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, uh, just to toot your horn a little bit, I used to uh, work at a company that tracked the low-rise housing market, and well... Shout out to Lloyd Martin. I usually don't shout him out. (laughs) But we used to, so I used to drive around and go to all the sales offices and there would actually be model homes. You know, either, you know, sometimes there was a sales pavilion, but a lot of times there was each developer in that community would have two or three model homes. And I always loved the cachet estate homes. I always thought they were the nicest, best floor plans, best elevations. So, um, um, just a little shout out there, but, uh, and that's even before you're, before you even joined the organization, but you know, things have changed. So, you know, no one has <laughs> model homes anymore. Right. Uh, it just, uh, did not, true? well, not as, but certainly you guys, not so as you guys probably have some model homes well, now or, or just like sales we centers. Need, we didn't need them for a few years. Right. Yeah. So we had stopped, you know, building yeah. them because we would sell out too quickly before we'd even have a chance to build the models. <laughs> so but, but to your point, I mean, that's, that's really, you know, the, what, what's in Cache's DNA, right? We, from a home building standpoint, we always prided ourselves in a, you know, higher level of design, architecture, quality, service. And so, because we, Desi, Tony at the time, you know, they had no choice but to create value through the, the home building exercise because they were paying retail value for their lots. Every time they'd be fortunate enough to get another tranche of lots, they would be at a higher price. So the only way to create value and, 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 uh, what was to, to do those things, to create a value proposition that was clear to the purchaser and differentiate themselves. So that's kind of been part of our story since day one. And I think uh, even though we're still trying to, be, you know, elevate or create scale with respect to our production operations, that part remains in our DNA, right? Like we, if you still look at the homes that we design, I think we do set ourselves apart from some of the other production builders out there. You have a big project in uh, Wilmot. Coming up, right? Kitchener? Yeah. It's outside of Kitchener? Yes. 1,500 homes? Yes. Tell, tell us about that one. It's uh, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of production. That's a lot of production building. Yeah, right there. and uh, and the, the three big letters that get thrown around in the development industry recently, the MZO. So tell us how you're stick handling that. Yes. Uh, so I'm happy to speak about that now. Probably wouldn't be as happy to speak about that six months ago, but... Uh, 
yeah, so we, we've been very active in Waterloo region. We currently have a, a site in Cambridge that, uh, I think is one of the, going to be one of the nicer, nicest communities in Waterloo region. Whereabouts been, in Cambridge? It's, uh, Cambridge West. So it's, um, basically Fountain Street in 401. Okay. So I don't know if you know where yeah. Langdon Hall is, but yeah, it's yeah, a little tucked right behind yeah, yeah. behind there. Beautiful. Beautiful it's community. It's, yeah, it's it's a it's it's awesome because it's close to the four hundred one and it's close to downtown Cambridge. A lot of awesome things happening yeah. in downtown Cambridge. The, uh, Gaslight the, District. The we find yeah, so yeah, with hip. hip. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah, great group. Actually, hip was the guy was when I was saying it came over to my house. Scott, kid. Yeah, it's good. he's a great guy. Yeah, he's good. Yeah. He's very active in that region. Oh, yeah. So. Um, very active, not only with building, but like he's he, he's from Cambridge, so he's he believes more than creating a ret- actually to Ben's jo- the jokes earlier, creating a profit and creating return for investors is important, but creating a community in a city that is livable is surprising because he used to be in banking. I know you <laughs> say that he's a banker, but yeah. he, he's 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 turned into this like passionate city builder that believes in like, creating a community and, and like building you know like functional retail and like. But why don't we put a science center in the retail condo? Like, why don't we think about that? Something he, for the kids, something for families. Short-term versus long-term thinking, right? He's very long-term thinking, yeah. much more than, you know, the ROI thinkers. 100%. So. 100%. He, he, I can say that about him because he's only a high-rise developer, so right. he doesn't compete in the low-rise space. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, so our, our strategy was very much about that region. And we, we've, um, so it wasn't just about uh, Wilmot or New Hamburg and that particular yeah. parcel. It was part of a larger strategy in that region. So we've got communities in Cambridge, Kitchener, um, Stratford, New Hamburg now. So where's um, New Hamburg? So New Hamburg is part of Wilmot. Oh, part it is, of the okay. development day. So New Hamburg okay. is comprised of primarily Baden and New Hamburg are the major settlement areas there. But the idea was that you would drive down Highway 7, Highway 8, starting in Cambridge, and you would be able to be part of any community, whether it be Cambridge, Kitchener, New Hamburg, Stratford. So as you f- drive down Highway 8, kind of the pricing or the value proposition would change, right? You'd be like $7.99 for a townhome in, in Cambridge and $6.99 Kitchener, $5.99 in New Hamburg. So you, Got it. Yeah, you'd yeah. have that. You got something for everybody. That's right. So, uh, but to answer your question regarding the MZO, like we, we bought that land, it was about 130 acres gross. Um, it wasn't in the urban boundary at the time, but it was part of the town's largest uh vision to bring Baden and New Hamburg together uh, at Nafziger Road, Nafziger Road being kind of center ice where our land was. Mm-hmm. So it made a lot of sense. And, and, and you know, it, all, it was all part of the town's vision. Uh, and we know that we knew that the region was going through the regional official plan update. So uh, we felt that we could make a strong case for bringing the lands in and uh, see if we could get our voices to be heard. So we definitely did that in a big way, probably bigger than we wanted to, because <laughs> it raised a lot of opposition and and who I got, I got ma- beat up. Who are the major uh, critics of the of the plan? It was mostly the environment, you know, the environmental, some local environmental groups, some farming groups, and things like that. But the policy was on side. Like the town's policy and vision has always been to bring uh, to bring these lands in and 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 complete the settlement area to Nafziger. Right. They've got a major recreation complex there, and all of the you know the amenities were were right there as well. So it made a lot of sense from a policy standpoint. And uh, in Waterloo Region, they separate land between countryside and protected countryside. So the countryside is effectively the white belt and the areas that they should grow. But Waterloo Region, very difficult place, very much about intensification, not so much about uh, low-rise or rural communities. We felt like the rural community of Wilmot was being shut out. So we did this MZO. In hindsight, the particular time we picked it was literally a year ago today, actually, that we did it. We, We were doing it kind of just before the holidays 
Um, but what it did do, it raised a lot of awareness to the regional uh, official plan process. And so we ultimately ended up rescinding the MZO, but we were successful bringing the lands into the official plan, which was our primary objective. So we kind of took a step forwards, took two, you know, step backwards, and here we are. I think so. We got two thirds of the lands in through the regional uh, region of Waterloo's official plan amendment, and uh, we're in the process of sitting, uh, submitting a, a plan now. So, so yeah. So I, I mean, it, it's 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 a good news story for us certainly because you know we, we thought it could potentially take a lot longer oh, than it did. Well, well we're, I guess when we're on the topic of uh, a policy. Uh, Bill 23 just recently passed. Uh, is there any changes in there that you think is going to have a have an impact on your business? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think they'll have an impact to some degree. I mean, <clears throat> all of the changes that the provincial government uh, is making, I think, will ultimately have a positive impact with respect to bringing new housing supply. It's just a very complicated problem, and I think there's no silver bullet to solve it. So I was fortunate enough to be at a roundtable with uh, a group of developers and Minister Clark a month or two ago, and we were sharing uh, our thoughts and ideas with respect to how to help the provincial government fulfill their mandate. In my opinion, there's kind of two major issues. One is the land supply, so addressing the regional official plan amendments that are coming out uh, and making sure that there's more land available for development. Until your land is in an urban boundary, you know, you can't even file an application. So opening up the land supply, making uh, more development land available for developers to file or proposed communities is the first step. The second step is the process. I'm trying to streamline the process and create accountability amongst the different commenting agencies. That's what I think Bill 23 is trying to address, some of those issues in the approval process that take forever. So holding the Conservation Authority accountable, uh, streamlining the DC and the parkland stuff. Uh, so there's definitely things in there that will improve the, the process or should improve the process. Whether it happens or not, practically speaking, it'll, it'll, it will, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see to see how the municipalities implement the legislation. That's the biggest key, right? Even with respect to the land that's being brought in, okay, so they brought our land into Wilmot or New Hamburg. But how will the municipality, you know, treat our application? Or, you know, that a lot of the issues that we have surrounding these approval processes are systemic. They're not easy, easy fixes. So I think Bill 23 is the start of the attempt to try to streamline this process, hold some of these commenting agencies more accountable, make, make things more certain. And I think it'll have an effect, how great an effect and how quickly, I'm not, I'm not sure. No. When you say systemic, explain that. Like, I, I know what you mean, but I guess just like how deeply rooted are these? I, I guess they're not NIMBYs. It's not even the neighbors. It's the it's the it's the municipalities and the it's people. Anti development, anti growth. But it's, but it's anti anti development within the municipal, like within the caucus of whatever you know. Yeah, politicians Politi and even, yeah. even planners. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, you're a planner, but you seem to be anti development, which seems very strange. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's there's a lot there in that question. Yeah. I think that I'll look. I'll tell you a quick story about when I was in Florida. Like when I left in 2005, we couldn't get lots on the ground fast enough. So we were at the municipalities, at the counties every day, trying to get approvals done. Right. Like we were the biggest headache for staff. Right. <laughs> they wanted, you know, in some instance to get it done, but we would just pound them to get these lots approved and on the ground. And they would get fed up with us at times and there would be a bit of frustration, right? So they they would resist. But by the time 
I came back because we went back to Florida to do some business in 2012. They had gone through so much pain over that period of the financial crisis and the housing meltdown that they were literally hugging us and welcoming us back to submit applications <laughs> no because they all, you know, everybody wanted their job back. They wanted right. to see investment right. again. They wanted to see trades working again. Toronto's never gone through that, right? Mm -hmm. We've never really had, at least over the last couple of decades, had any significant pain. Everybody's been a beneficiary a point, of the, you know, of the boom, of the housing boom, not just, you know, not just, uh, you know, housing developers, a lot of consumers, obviously, our trades, our skilled trades, yeah. but our municipalities as well. Yeah. They've gotten, everybody's gotten a little bit complacent with respect to, um, how good things have been. How good things yeah. have been, Take right? That's a good point, actually. So that's Take it. for granted the land transfer taxes and the development well, I mean, the, charges yeah, and like, well, All of the fees that have been generated, the <laughs> revenue that's been generated, it, you know. So when I say it's systemic, we've been conditioned to just accept the fact that things are going to keep rolling. And there's never been any, any kind of pain where people have had to take a step back and, and just appreciate that we're really, even as, as developers, we're extremely fortunate home builders to be yeah. operating in this environment. And, and so I think a bit of humility is required probably amongst the industry, including the municipalities and staff. Into the, to the broken system though, without, without it well, crashing. Yeah, that's the problem, right? That is exactly the problem. And I think there are proponents for change, even at the municipal level, I think people are starting to see that, you know, the provincial government is convicted with respect to making housing more affordable, which is a breath of fresh air. But, you know, you, you see the flip side, you see the, the, the media and the news articles that are coming out. There's always going to be those naysayers yeah. and those guys that are going to resist, resist change. Bill 23, it's 80 percent negative articles uh, yeah. about it. Right? And it's nothing that that crazy. Well, wow. like it, that has nothing to do with the green belt. Yeah, that's you the know, thing. Like, People think the, those lands being brought in from the Greenbelt were part of Bill 23, but they, they were not, right? And I think there's that's a misconception. A, that's a totally separate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, but I'm saying there, there's nothing too crazy in Bill 23, really. I mean, uh, even even the Greenbelt stuff, if we're going to go there, you know, I think people need to understand the Greenbelt is not, the, the lines that distinguish the Greenbelt from developable land is not a scientific exercise in many instances. These are not ecologically or environmentally sensitive lands in all instances. And a lot of them don't have farms or, that, yeah, or not, it's, yeah. So, and I'm all for protecting, uh, you know, prime agricultural land or environmentally sensitive land. And I think the majority of developers are, but there's a practical way of, you know, developing responsibly and still protecting those other interests. It's so, I think a lot of it comes down to education and I think the government is, is, is trying to do that, but we've run out of time. Yeah. You know, these changes need too. to be made. Right. Yeah. And my fear is, is like, okay, this land's being brought in by the time the municipalities are able to approve it and get it through the system. It's too late. Like it's you said. the Ford government, you know, the four, four years is up. We're going to have a new government. All bets are off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So have you bought any land in the green belt? Then? That's the you question. know what? We, we, we are very risk averse with respect to our land buying <laughs> yeah, strategy. So we don't have, we can't sit on land for 20 years. Literally like we, yeah. we buy land. We don't even wait till the ink's dry and we've got our sleeves rolled up and we're trying to get things approved and, 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 and move, and, and move things forward. So, so we do get, have a, you, you we, get Ford's daughter, a Gucci purse for her uh, for her birthday. Yeah, I, and, I uh, definitely. Wink, wink, yeah, wink, I definitely uh, don't know Ford's daughter. <laughs> thing, but uh, just, but just, um, <laughs> we do have some land in the green belt, but not that we purchased. Like it was, 
they're basically remnant lands of developments that we've completed or are in the process of completing that are you never really that are still in the anyways. green belt and right. are not being brought into the <laughs> urban area. You made, you made an interesting comment about so Bill Twenty Three and trying to open up the development application process and create more laws, create more units, whether it be low rise or high rise. And I was talking to some developers yesterday, and they were kind of joking that you know Ford's basically in doing so probably going to the, the, the price of land and especially high rise land is going to in all likelihood come down a little bit, right? So everyone's saying like there's going to be more lots, land's not going to be worth as much. So the, the joke was that now we got now we have to hope that the liberals get back in to make things tighter again, so our prices because <laughs> they're all sitting on land that's going to theoretically take a twenty five percent hit or a thirty percent hit. So then we need we need the liberals to come back in and control the supply. <laughs> Look, there, there's some truth to that, right? Like I land has become no, so truth. valuable yeah. in this province because the supply is so constrained. Just if you have a piece of valuable or land that has a clear path to development, it's extremely valuable. Yeah. There's no doubt. Now, again, I think that they're going to the province is doing its part in bringing these lands in. I don't know if shovels are going to get in the ground any faster though, like it's yet to be determined. So you, that might be right yeah. because the supply side of our equation has been so constrained. I don't know if that's going to change with respect to what the Ford government's doing. Theoretically, based on what we're seeing, it should, yeah. but I don't think the jury's out on that yet. Yeah. Well, I don't think like, the jury's I, out on any of this stuff. Yeah. Yet, no, right? it's like, not. I just, well, I think that that's why even when you go to the 80% <clears throat> of these articles are negative on, Bill 23, there's so much uncertainty in, in terms of like how this is going to play out. And we're not even out of the gate yet. Yeah. Right? But let, let me ask you a quick quick question, because I know that people get really upset about greenfield, even any type of greenfield development happening in the GTA. And they'll say there's all developers are sitting on all this land and not developing it. Do you have any you know properties that have been you know approved for five years that you're just sitting on waiting for the value to go up and maybe you know flip it to somebody else? So we have lands that we've been sitting on, but not by choice. Like we are not the developers that uh, are going to sit and just hold on to land. Like we don't have that luxury. Uh, so like I said, everything that we buy, we're looking to add value to it immediately and ultimately bring to market as soon as we can. And and, and we've done that. Like we've sold over 2,000 homes in the last three years. We still have about 1,300 homes currently in backlog that we have to deliver over the next 18, 24 months. Sold? Sold, yeah. Wow. So we have, wow. yeah, we've- we've That's a lot of homes. It's been a, a crazy two years. And I think we've borrowed a lot of those sales from the future. So we haven't, you know, we've, we're still selling some product now or-, or we're working to sell some product now, but most of our, like we we sold, uh, we released a, a subdivision in Arthur, um, and between September uh, and September 2021 and April 2022, we sold a couple hundred homes there, um, and, and and so, you know, I think a lot of the a lot of the builders are in the same spot, right? Like Every but nobody's too focused on, at least for us sales at the moment we're focused on fulfilling the commitments we've yeah. made over the last yeah. couple of years and we've got our hands full just executing that so any concerns about uh where costs are going and given the fact that you sold the houses oh a ton of concern uh, yeah a ton of concern with respect to costs for sure it's it's uh how worried are you about the where, where costs are going and the price you sold the house material at? inflation come down at all you know what not not that we've seen i think this is a very unique I don't know if it's part of the country, but there's still significant demand here because we're all dealing with our backlog. So our, our trades, there's there's very little excess capacity. In fact, we're 
we've probably exceeded the capacity and I think it'll remain that way probably for the next at least three to six months. And then I think that we'll likely see, you know, a a bit of uh, a bit of slack open up towards the second half of next year, hopefully. But at the moment, um, you know, we're we're paying a premium on material and we're paying a premium on on labor in order to get production. Like our specific case is unique too, because we're growing 5X year over year, right? So, and we're doing it in a very difficult environment, which is crazy. The pie is only so large and we've sold more than the pie is allowed. And we're trying to take a greater piece of that pie right now, as right. far as the trade base. And so, uh, yeah, we're, it's not, it's, it's has, it's has challenges yeah. one, right one, now. One, uh, couple of groups we work with are in the, the trades businesses and in the supply the supply, you know, either lumber, or they have a windows. One of my partners has a windows company. He was saying that he's got 1700 homes in backlog to provide windows. So for. I think I know who that company Probably is. Do, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> 1700 yeah, homes. Yeah. So if you call for a windows quote right now, you'll be lucky to get a quote. And if you call back and ask for him to sharpen the pencil on the price, he'll just say, thanks. Take your, like, there's, there's no, there's no discussion on price. There's no wiggle room. Like the price only goes one way and it's not down. If there's a 1700 home backlogs. So. Yeah. So we've, we've been wow. ch- very much challenged by lumber, by windows over the last six to 12 months. And I yeah. think that I see that continuing over the yeah. six. Yeah. And it's, it's tough because you, you know, there hasn't been a lot of certainty in instances with respect to yeah. when those deliveries are going to occur. And that becomes a challenge when you're trying to communicate with your homeowner and fulfill yeah. commitments to your homeowner. At the end of the day, these, these guys are scheduling these these closings um, around their li- you know their lives. So you're you know it's been an, it's been a challenge. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I agree. I think price at some level. Uh, I mean, there's always like different indi- indicators you look at. One one on the trade side, um, I, uh, I deal with a, a stack a guy who builds builds stack towns, and he says, you know, I have been noticing, you know, when I call a trade for a price, I'm getting a call back within 24 hours or 48 hours. It used to be I'd be lucky to get a call back with within five days or six days. It used to take a week or two. So you kind of feel if they're calling you back the same day, they're not as busy and they're looking for business. So that to me is an indicator that maybe there is some maybe softening in, in prices to come. But Callback indicator. The callback indicator. Callback indicator. Yeah, yeah. it's very... Uh, very scientific. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Like, they're not as no, busy as they yeah, were, no. right? And they're saying, and they're, and they're hungry for business. So yeah. they're, they're turning on their, their business development hat a little bit more than they had to the last two, year, two three years. Yeah, I mean, I'm hope, I hope we'll see more of that in the next you know, several months. But I think for, from our standpoint, like I said, our trade base that was building our 150 homes, we've tapped them out and we're trying to increase our, our capacity. So we've had to go go out and really expand our trade base and build new relationships. And we're still in the process of doing that because we're also going out to markets that are That's tertiary tough. to the GTA, right? Yeah. Like a lot of the GTA, GTA guys won't even go out yeah. to some of the areas that we're in, like Arthur. Where is Arthur? I yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm serious, where is it? Yeah, no, it's a, good, it's a great question. It's uh, it's just north of Guelph. So you've got Guelph, like if you take Highway 6 yeah. north, you yeah. hit Guelph, you hit Fergus, Fergus next okay, stop's yeah. Arthur. Okay. I'm, I'm from the area, so I know where yeah. Arthur yeah. is. But uh, um, I want to get into a quick question. I know we were discussing before we turned the mics on. You know, some, you know, other traditional low-rise developers uh, realized that, you know, land availability was was shrinking because of the Green Belt and Places to Grow Act, and and uh, they made a, a conscious decision to uh, to go vertical, whereas other developers have made the decision to 
go to the Arthurs, uh, the Godriches, the Peterboroughs, the, the the Wilmonts, the you know Stratfords, Wellens, Laura. you know, uh, down into to Niagara Falls. Great, yeah. into Niagara Falls. You know what was you know what, what was <clears throat> the you know the basis for you know outward expansion versus versus upward expansion? Uh, great question. So I think for us that evolution started probably you know, six, six to eight years ago where we started to see even affordability for us to compete in the GTA with land values continuously going up to compete with these larger families that were buying land. Uh, we started to see the risk reward proposition was not as attractive for us. Or if we were going to create scale and create a production home building operation is that we would have to, to go out a little further outside the GTA. So we experimented with that. I think our first project uh, was well, we did something in Georgetown before then, but even in Orangeville and then in Beamsville, you know, being uh, low rise builders, uh, we saw that we could create a very va- attractive value proposition out in these suburban markets. So Orangeville was suburban to Brampton. Mm-hmm. So the, the price gap between Brampton and Orangeville was very attractive for somebody to take the 20 minute drive up Highway 10. And so we did that in Beamsville as it related to Hamilton. And so we realized, and, and this, if you look at our entire portfolio, uh, I think we saw an opportunity in, in small town Ontario in these tertiary markets that were still connected to the GTA via the major transit routes. So the 401, QEW, 403, yep. 400, that we could have a greater impact. And there were a lot of other things that came with that, right? Even just getting your approvals, right? So, in, in, you know, Vaughan, Mississauga. Brampton, it was, it was tough to get approvals, tough to get a call back. But where you work in these smaller towns, yeah. it's much easier. You can walk into any door in City Hall yeah. and you could try to move things along. So um, the DCs were a lot lower as well. And it was, it was kind of, we were still catering to our target consumer, somebody that wanted a ground-based house with a backyard with larger built forms. So uh, it made a lot of sense for our business model. And uh, we kind of doubled down on that strategy over the last five years. And, and if you look at, our website, you'll see all of, you know, some of the areas that we've yeah, placed bets, right? Like it that. wasn't without risk, obviously, even, you know, five, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have heard of these towns, right? Brantford, Arthur, Woodstock, Stratford, Ingersoll, all of these areas. But, you know, obviously COVID really accelerated some of those trends, especially with the remote work trend with people leaving, you know, the urban yeah. nodes and heading to rural communities for one or more space. So it made us look pretty good. But I think, you know, our strategy even before that was very much committed to uh, creating value in these suburban markets and uh, really addressing the the eroding affordability problem, which, you know, I don't know if there's a solution to the affordability problem in the GTA. Like, I don't know how you deliver a house at an affordable or attainable price point in the GTA anymore. And so, you know, I think that the big our thesis was a big part of answering that question. Yeah. So when you say the GTA though, cause I, I kind of look at the GTA now, it's the GTA is Niagara, Hamilton, St. Catharines, it's Oakville. It's greater Golden Horseshoe. Yeah, like the, yeah. Great, GTA. Like the GTA is no longer just like North York, Scarborough, Toronto, yeah. Mississauga, right? But like, you guys are going like outside of that. I no, remember. I think it has, yeah, you're right. Like yeah. G, the, we've never really defined the GTA. I used to look at the real net. Like I used to be a subscriber to the real net data and, and, it would never address the markets that I was going into. Right. Right. Like there was no, no doubt. there was no, um, 
precedent for what we were trying to well, do. No, in some real, of these no one real has ever been to Arthur's. So yeah, nobody's been. Right. To, nobody's, <laughs> nobody's pulled a hundred permits in Arthur. We're going to pull two hundred this year. So, I remember Peter Politas called me one time and he's like, "Ben, what do you know about Colgate?" And I'm yeah. like, "What the fuck is Colgate?" Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, "Why are you looking at that?" And now he's laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah, I yeah. mean, just killing. You know, whatever he bought. You know, these lots for nothing, and uh, you know, yeah. ten years later, selling. <laughs> houses that are almost a million dollars, right? Like craziness. Yeah, I know a hundred percent. And I guess to answer the second part of your question, why we haven't gone vertical yet, I think is because the risk reward proposition for us has become so attractive with respect to our core business. As far as ground-based housing, there, there was, there hasn't really been an appetite to, to take on that risk. Plus I I don't, you know, it's, it's difficult to understand. I'm, I'm still surprised with respect to how resilient the condo market has been in the face of, um, that, that those gaps that we were talking about and just the economics, right? I really yeah. enjoy my sleep and putting a crane <laughs> in the ground and spending $300 million and waiting for buyers to show up at the end of all that is not uh, something I aspire for. So, so I just want to go back to a question because affordability is like such a hot topic and it's so important. And I think that, you know, like being a home builder, I, I, I feel like being in this industry, it's our duty to provide housing for everybody, no matter how much, what your income is, right? But that's easier said than done, obviously. And I and I understand, obviously, the economics and the financing that goes in to home building. Better and, than and, most. And then, you know, the fact that you have to drive a profit and what, where the costs are at and where revenues are at. But, I mean, just as like a, a, a citizen of, of the city and, and of this country, which is a great place to live in, and it's attractive, obviously. We're, we're attracting tons of immigrants to come here. But how do we, I mean... I'll put into a question if you were Minister Clark or if you were in Ford seat or if you were even even on on the more you know even if you were in Trudeau's seat like what do we do like what what solution could you come up with if you had to come up with one like I know you already said there's no silver bullet to solve some of these problems but if there was what would what would be the first lever you would pull to to try and solve that I think I think the biggest issue to date has been the constraint on supply. So if you have supply, you force the free market to compete with each other. And there should be, if, and that's really where the consumer uh, gets gets the benefit, right? They get, they get the best value proposition that's available because you've got guys trying to be as efficient as they can to deliver that product to the consumer. So I, I think that's where it starts. I think it starts with policy, but I think, you know, we're trying to undo 20 years of bad policy and that's created all these other side effects yeah. around complacency and systemic culture um, and nimbyism and all of these things because we haven't been uh, proactive with respect to addressing some of these issues. So I don't, I think it's going to take a lot of time to do it. It's going to take a lot of conviction, which I think the current government has, um, but I'm, I'm pretty sc- skeptical with respect to any this process having any meaningful increase in in supply or shovels yeah. on the ground, like I think it'll help some That's of it. But it's hear. it's it's, <laughs> it's tough because look, the other part that you touched on was what are the consequences of our circumstances right now as yeah. it relates to affordability, mm-hmm. right? Like, so what are the consequences? We're not as competitive economically because businesses can't relocate here right. because they can't find the workforce. Right. There are significant socioeconomic consequences with people having to spend a million dollars on a house and service a mortgage for 25, 30 years. You know, they're not going to be able to spend as much time with their children, their families. What are the consequences of that 20, 30 years from now? So I think these are all, 
you know, un- unanswered questions that are that are concerning, and they they just without uh, a solution to the housing problem. And I think it's a big part of why we went out of the cities because look, we wanted to be part of the solution. We, we wanted to be part of being able to still deliver housing for new families. And even, even the household formation discussion, if you look at younger couples and younger people in general, they've delayed starting families, but they haven't abandoned those values necessarily. They still want to have families. They yeah. just got to figure it out. Yeah. They got to get their jobs. They got to accumulate some some yeah. wealth, some finances, and they need a solution. There's no solution currently for them. You're right. And that's the challenge. But I think we're we're trying to provide a solution if you're willing to to move to, to some of these smaller towns. And it's not even the GGH anymore. For us, we you know, we're across right. southern Ontario. It's, mm-hmm. it's interesting mm-hmm. you, you you mentioned families. If you go on any low rise developer website, it always has something about families, has pictures of families. Is there, you know, I, I wanted to ask, you know, a lot of the product that you built is, you know, aimed at families, but why isn't there more diversity in, in, in suburban or greenfield developments? Why is there not, you know, any duplexes? Why any low rise apartments, laneway homes? Uh, you know, why is it all for the most part, just single family or townhome, two story, single family, three story townhome. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a good question. I think there's, there's probably a few reasons. One, when people come out to these smaller towns, they're looking for land. They're looking to have a backyard. They're looking to have a barbecue. They're looking to have a room for their kids to play and, and grow up. So I think that's part of it. The market has dictated that that is the product for that particular submarket. But I think that's evolving. I think the policy is evolving around it. In some instances, maybe the policy has been ahead of what the market has asked for in some of those submarkets. But I think you, you're you going to see more diversity in the mix of housing in the majority of submarkets across Ontario. Uh, there's also been a degree of complacency amongst developers, right? Because they take the path of least resistance when they know they can sell anything that comes to market. So why complicate it? Right. Yeah. Why come up with all this creative type of housing when I know I can sell, you know, the 30, 36 footers, two car garage, 22,000 square feet, like everything. We've stifled innovation as a result of this policy. Yeah. Like if and, you go to the and US. we've also stifled, stifled it because of, how strong our market's been? Like, why would any high-rise developer do, you know, spend all this money on a on a Swiss Stark attack when they can just do a box and it's going to sell for sixteen hundred bucks a foot? Right? Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> no, exactly. Right? right. So I think that's probably a you know a silver lining or a positive, hopefully byproduct of what we're going through now. It's like, is is hopefully this. You know, if you can't sell out the way we've been selling out over the last two years, it's going to force us to innovate again and find ways to differentiate ourselves and find ways to compete. Like if you go to the U.S. and you see these master plan communities with thousands of acres, you'll see these national home builders going toe to toe with respect to trying to uh, differentiate themselves and create a value proposition for their consumer. And and we just don't have that here because it hasn't been required. I've never had to. Yeah. If you've got a piece of land, you can build lazy. houses. It's got complacent and comfortable and lazy in a lot of ways. It's true. It's uh, anyways, the next few months will be, will be very interesting. Um, Hopefully not uh, the next few years, obviously 2017, yeah, we discussed that yeah. on the, on one of our previous podcasts. Low rise prices in the GTA went up like forty eight percent, and then pricing kind of like like a, a balloon. Someone slowly letting the the air out. Pricing just kind of went down yeah. for almost you know three years. And and you're in the GTA space, maybe not necessarily the same in some of the smaller communities you were you were looking at. How do you how do you compare that time versus this time? 
which period of time were you referring we're talking to? Like 2017, and then the fair housing plan came in, and then the market was the, the low density market was really slow from the second half of 2017 all the way into like maybe the start of 2019. Yeah, I think the biggest differentiator there is probably the interest rates, right? Like we haven't seen a rising interest rate environment in a long time. Yeah. And I think that's like if you if you look at the supply variables and the demand variables, then it's really just about where where those two intersect, and that's really price. I still think that they're the fundamentals remain strong, but pricing needs to adjust. Like you just said, pricing went up 48%. So if it's you crazy. take pre-pandemic <laughs> pricing and post-pandemic pricing, and it's 40 to 50%, like why can't there just be an adjustment in the middle? Oh. Or will it be close? It could be closer to even pre-pandemic prices. Nobody knows. But the point is, is that if we can, if the rates stop rising, the market will reach its equilibrium and we'll figure out what the right price is. Right. And they'll, you know, they'll, they'll be a value proposition that makes sense to the buyers. Not that people don't need houses. It's, it's almost like, even if you look at the resale market, there's not a lot of inventory. Like they're, 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 even the, the, the interest rate hikes that have occurred, there's a lagging effect to them. So we haven't really seen the impact of those rate hikes until three to six months from now. And there might be a little bit of pain that comes out of that process in order to find equilibrium. Well, there's going to be the there's first, gonna, the first, the first, the first, the first seller is going to actually, a, a guy just sold a house uh, in my neighborhood and he sold it. He bought it in 2019 and he sold it for $50,000 less than he sold. He bought it for. Yeah. So it's happening. Like, it has to happen. He, he had it listed for $300,000 more than he bought it for. And obviously he had to sell and you're, so you're seeing it, it's coming. And so it's that, a, that has yeah. to happen. Like yeah. that all has to get flushed out of the system. And I think it's a good thing, right? Because you know, I, th I think in order for us to get back to a market that's balanced, that's that has equilibrium in it, we have to flush out that those those and, kind and of bad, and you bad deals. You mentioned rates. Are you, are you predicting another rate hike in 2023? I been going back and forth, but I saw the last rate hike of 50 points as the Bank of Canada kind of flinching a little bit because yeah. they had the market at. You know, they had a clear path at 0.75. That's their guidance. They could have easily done it. I think they still had to to, to raise the rates, but they, they backed off a bit. Honestly, I might, I'm going out on a limb here a little bit because it's probably not uh, as popular an opinion, but I don't, I think that they're gonna, they'll likely flinch again. Yeah. I think they're going to be more cautious yeah. than they are because they, they know that if they overshoot that they could cause some real pain. And again, like the effects of their recent rate hikes haven't been digested by the market yet. No. It's going to take months for them to see the effect of what they just did. And here they are continuing well, the, yeah, to raise. So it'll that, be interesting. Yeah. You, you no. got to sit the cycle, right? So the cycle is, and I think, I don't know what the, what the stat is, but it's in, in around 40% of home mortgages in Canada are coming due in the, the middle six months of the year. So Q2 and Q3 next year. So like if you had a fixed term rate at 2% and now it's going to be 6%, like that's, your house is twenty worth twenty percent less. You can, probably just, can't afford uh, your mortgage. I just redid my mortgage. I was at two point two five. Now I'm at five point five. <laughs> <laughs> was that a, that was a variable rate mortgage? Uh, I had a two year fixed. Two year fixed. So year luckily, fixed, yeah. you're, you're you're a rich guy, so no one cares about you. <laughs> it'll, it'll be uh, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see as those like yeah. If you think about every you know all mortgages should expire. The majority of mortgages should expire within a five-year term, right? So even if 20% every year, you're going to see a lot of these mortgages yeah. get flushed out of the system and think it's going to have a significant impact. I'm reading a book called The Black Swan, but it tells you the complete opposite of what I'm saying. So I'm going to be totally wrong. But I think that if <laughs> rates do even stay where they are, 
uh, let alone go up. I think it's going to cause cause some pain in, in yeah. the next twelve months. What's, sure. what's the black swan about? It's about uh, basically not using historical data or past events to pre- predict the future. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's the things that basically the one-offs that catch you entirely off guard and why we're programmed not to see them. So it's it's all about. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. We're we're like stressing our portfolio right now, and I'm looking at all the land loans, for example, and I'm sort of like trying to get six months ahead of everything. And if you took a, a two-year land loan, just say a year ago with us, and you had a two-year interest reserve at five percent, then that interest interest reserve is not going to last you 12, 18, or 24 months. It's going to last you maybe fourteen or fifteen months, right? So we're looking at this, and I'm trying to get six months ahead of all of these deals and trying to find problems before. Even our developer partner may, they've probably identified it. They haven't told us about it. So we're, but we're trying to start the conversation <laughs> six months earlier or three months early, right? But it's it, just to your point, it's like I, I just sit in these meetings and I'm like, I feel like we're doing all the right things, but we're going to get hit with something that we don't even see coming. It's not going to be one of these 12 or 13 I've identified. It's going to be something out of freaking left field that. I it's never what you coming. know, right? It's always the, you know, what you, you don't know. This that, scares that, me, though. So your, your developer partners don't send you a text, hey, Steve, going to run out of money in six months, so just be, uh, <laughs> just be prepared for that? No, like, it's like the day after the the, the, the interest payment doesn't... Anyway, <laughs> it'll, it'll be, don't it'll get be, the next six to 12 will be interesting if yeah. rates don't... Uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next six, six yeah. to twelve months. Even on the lending that we're doing now, like I find that the underwriting is obviously tightened up, but it hasn't dried up. Like you can still, if you know, if you're a credible borrower, if your project makes sense, if you're using input assumptions that reflect that are reasonable and yeah. reflect today's values, today's assumptions, you can still get loans. Like we're yeah, we're, we'll co- we're constantly underwriting new deals that we have that, but you require more pre-sales, yeah, more equities. <laughs> All those, yeah. yeah. No, it's true though. You got listen. Look at us. We've got it. Like we've had a great year, and we. It's not like I'm going to sit here and be like, we're not going to do business next year. We've got a staff. We've got investors. They're looking for return. People. We still need to build houses. I. I, I we have to lend. Like the world has to keep going. And so you're just changing your your LTV. Yeah, yeah. You just more. You know more. Uh, rigor on the underwriting and and just try and protect yourselves and deal with good people. Honestly, like it's a lot of it is you know who's gonna who who has the 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 stay power to get through this right? Like who's got the cash? Who's got? We're, we're, I'm making a lot of my clients provide like eighteen month, twenty four month cash flows. Like what what do you got on the books? What's coming in? What's coming out? How are we gonna go through this together? It's much more of like a partnership undertaking than just like here's a you know like a debt. I see that I see that being an opportunity as well over the next little bit is is that the the conditions are going to get more difficult, right? So it's going to separate or let the cream give the cream an opportunity to rise to the top. Where we've seen, you know, uh, they say you know all tides, all boats rise, all, and all good boats, tide, yeah. 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 So whatever. None of us know that, but I use it. Whatever it is, rising tide lifts all boats. Rising there tide is. lifts all boats. So I think that's going to be true for everybody, right? Where you know it's. It's going to give an opportunity for those that may have made prudent, good business decisions to be rewarded for it and to work with people that are are, are similar in that regard with respect to, uh, you know, how they operate their business. And so because there, there's been a pretty low barrier to entry over the last few years where you could buy a piece of dirt and before the ink even dried on the dirt, it was yeah. worth more than it, what you paid. Right. And now today that's that's not true. You're not yeah. necessarily going to make the lift on the dirt. And you've got to execute in order to create value. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a, as a lender, you're looking for borrowers that 
<clears throat> can do that yeah. because well, they're not going to get bailed out. There's no wind behind their well, back so anymore. In fact, made, they're yeah. So many developers made so much money on developing land when the, really they just bought a piece of, they overpaid for something, but the market went up 30% and they got rich. 100%. They never had to do anything per se to, yeah. so, but, but, but if you go, and it actually goes back to even to my our earlier comment about developers and builders and one of uh, another meeting I was in yesterday, we were just talking about how a lot of young developers have never actually had to build anything and how complicated construction is, and especially high rise. You know, you have, you have a young group of, a young group who's bought three sites and taken it through a development process, fine. But have you ever built a 40-story condo? It's very, it's not easy. Like, that's not... Yeah. And everyone looks at real estate development as like, oh, I could do that. Like, everyone's made so much money, I'm going to be a developer. Well, it's not. And 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 I see it firsthand that a lot of these guys, you know, they're, they're, they're two or three mistakes and the profit margin is completely eroded and then they start eating, eating into their equity. Like, it happens quick. Yeah, so I think that's... Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's really where our focus is right now is, is really on, obviously, increasing our operational capacity and just focused entirely on executing and fulfilling our commitments mm -hmm. and just getting ready for the next opportunity. Like we haven't sold really that much. We sold 2000 houses over the last three years, but since May, June, there hasn't really been a lot of activity and we've just kept our heads down. Even, even we've stepped off on acquisitions and, and even deploying new capital until we meet our current obligations. So I think there's, I think there people are going to be rewarded for, uh, for executing and for operating, I and totally for agree. you know, and so that's, right. and I've been, my, my focus has been entirely on that over the last six months. It's, it's actually uh, quite unique yeah. because I've always had my foot on the gas with respect to acquisitions. And well, well, before we go on to the final section, you know, you're talking about, you know, not doing as many acquisitions. Have you seen any distressed deals yet? You know, the Joe Blow developer, you know, or our builders uh, knock me into to execute and, and those deals coming by your uh, your desk yet? No, the market is, is so resilient. I mean, the majority of developers are, are well capitalized. You do get the one-offs. Um, in, in my, like, again, there, you know, I'll take the Wilmot deal. There was another opportunity uh, out in that neck of the woods you know, the land was probably worth $30, $40 million three, four years ago. And give the offer, a guy an offer for uh, for $70 million, like late, uh, earlier this year, call it. And uh, the market's a hick, you know, market's got a hiccup or whatever. So we go back to him and say, look, in the face of all of this uh, economic uncertainty, we'll still offer you $60 million bucks, right? The guy says, no, no. Huh. Well, it was worth 30, 40 million three, four years ago. But in his mind now, it's worth 70 and that's it. Yeah. This is what drives So he just sits and waits. Uh, yeah. Sticky. So Stick, like sticky I vendors. can't, there's no point in us chasing those opportunities right now yeah. because our, our plate's full, obviously, with, with current work. We've been fortunate. We've done a lot of acquisitions over the course of the pandemic. We we were able to see kind of the retail values of, of housing in our sales office increase over the course of the pandemic. And we were able to arbitrage the land values and, and buy a lot of land over that period to kind of stock our portfolio. So we're not in a, in a rush to redeploy capital until there's either greater certainty with respect to uh, the environment or there is a significant correction in values. Yeah. And there, we haven't seen that, to yeah. answer your question. Yeah. I haven't seen any distress. Well, the, the, other, the other thing I'm seeing, just it's a, such an interesting comment. I know we got to wrap up here, but... These vendors, they got, they, they saw the top of the market and they felt it, they tasted it, they touched it. And, <laughs> and, and now that's the number. Yeah. And, and you talk to these guys and 
it again going back to like equilibrium and pain it's not just the house the the consumer it's these these big land vendors you guys missed your window and they don't want to admit it to themselves like i was looking at a site and we're like we have like a 15 million dollar loan on a 30 million dollar valuation but they had an appraisal to a year and a half ago for 50 million and they had an offer for 60 and they didn't take it i'm like you guys are brain dead yeah that was like the golden moment and now they think that's the price it's not it's never going to be worth that in my opinion again wow 1989 land <laughs> values didn't come back until like 2003 in the high density downtown toronto market right yeah, yeah. so uh you know stuff was tra- stuff was trading like 80 90 dollar per billable foot in like the late 80s in the toronto downtown condo I, market listen, right? I, think I, I was I, eight I, years old but <laughs> so i have no recollection of that well, I was told about it. I was, uh, I, was, I, I listen, I, I think, think I was land, I, we saw land go to like 250, 300 bucks a foot downtown. And now it's hard to make deals work at 150 bucks a foot. I'm oh. not kidding. It's, it's very difficult right now. And I think that there's going to be even more, more, uh, depression on those prices. Yeah. So I think that, that that's, you saw my land that before. stalemate, like there, there's yeah. a stalemate right now between seller and buyer. Oh, buying. for sure. So, and I think the prudent guys, like you, you know, you got to be opportunistic when, when, uh, when you can, and I think we were over a certain period, and you know, our, our portfolio is is our pipeline is, is is full, so we're not forced to acquire at the moment. Right, um, space. It's a great But we're we always excited to to look at new opportunities, and we continue to do so because we're continuously wanting to see what the market's doing and how emotions and sentiment is changing amongst the vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're starting to see it. We're starting to see things change because people realize this might not be 2017 or this might not be 2008. This is or different 2020. or 2020. This yeah. might be a two year, three year stint. Yeah, and we may, we may never see rates back to where they were. Yeah. And if we do, it's because the world's ending and that's not good either. Right. <laughs> yeah, so, I know, I know. so I think those questions are starting to pop up. And I think the, the longer this, I think it's going to be a pretty dark winter and a lot of people are going to, have to do some thinking hopefully it's the vendors and uh and and things will things will adjust but like is it going to kill anybody if their land goes from 70 to 60 million or to 50 million like they probably bought it for they probably yeah they probably acquired it in a in a a state so they're okay that's right (laughs) anyway so we have we usually have a final section called our rapid fire questions so we usually ask uh you know it could be yes no just a couple couple words a couple sentences max actually we've done really good in our last Last couple of people have been uh, kept them nice and tight. Well, I missed uh, the last two shows. Usually, but, someone uh, answers one of these questions, and I ask a follow-up. Steve will ask a follow-up, but don't answer his follow-up question. <laughs> just ignore him. Just uh, you know, look out, look out the window. So, so here we go. You ready? All Let's set. Go. Rapid yeah. fire. Okay. You want me to go first? I'll Dave? go first. What okay. is the latest smart technology that you are putting into your house? Oh no, into your homes. Oh, interesting. I thought. Yeah. What's, what's make smart it two technology? questions. Into your personal house and to your homes you're building. Ring doorbell. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah? So that's becoming a standard for, yeah. for cash. Interesting. What percentage of buyers are requesting a finished basement? 10%. 10%. Okay. Have you ever built the wrong house on a lot? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we kind of asked that, that <laughs> one before. Um, okay. Uh, okay. If the Oh, this is interesting. This is a, this is a stats question but, uh, that I would ask. If the lot frontage and the square footage of a house are the same, how much more valuable is a two-story home versus a three-story home? Fifth, uh, two-story home. Yeah. So let's say you got a, I got a, 
1800 square foot townhome on a 18 foot lot. One's two story, one's three story. What would the what would the value difference be? What what do people value two only having to go up one set of stairs versus two sets of stairs? It's a good question. Yeah, I got to do I'm doing some math in my head here because the two <laughs> this two story should be more valuable. This, that's the because I get this question all the time. So I was like, hey, that competitive development sold for X. I'm like, yeah, but you're this three stories <laughs> and that one's two stories. Yeah, so yours is 20, less valuable. 20%. I'll probably regret that once I do the math. In my head. <laughs> it's okay. What is the most difficult skilled trade to learn? To learn? I don't know. Maybe uh, I would say an electrician because you can get killed. <laughs> I have no, I, I just, these things just pop into my head, some of these questions. Okay. The most difficult one, I don't know, masonry, may, probably, because yeah. you're out in the elements good, the whole time. Yeah, you have to yeah. be a good mason and you're yeah. always outside. But What should a high school student looking to become a developer study in university? Engineering. For me, for me, it would be engineering, yeah. No, definitely. I think it's just the critical thinking side of it, right? Just being able to analyze risk and having a methodology for, for where you make decisions, I think, is the big one. Did you have, just as a side question? Do you have any any business school training? No. Did you do an MBA or did no, you no zero? So, I so. thought about it for ten years <laughs> and then realized it probably could be teach part of it because it's rare for an engineer to be as I guess entrepreneurial as you are. Yes, right? I've, I've met that. a lot of a lot of I've met a lot of engineers and if you could ever have an engineer with an MBA, it's like the perfect. Mind yeah, in a lot of yeah, ways, which they offer now. They didn't offer, I think, when I was yeah. doing my engineering. Yeah. A lot of VCs, a lot of venture capitalists, like they they love engineers. But there are there yeah. are some like well, I know just off the top of my head, like Michael Lee Chen's an engineer. He, he bought Manulife and started. Oh, yeah. yeah, okay. Uh, that wasn't a question. I just came to me. What uh, <laughs> what is going to be a better product to sell in the suburbs? Suburbs moving forward, mid-rise condos or stacked townhouses? Good question. Uh, I would, depending on the type of stacks, I'm not a huge fan of stacks, but they've come a long way. Mid-rise. Yeah, yeah. Steve right. talks. Steve always talks about the. There's only a couple guys that can do good stack townhomes. Yeah. I don't know what, where this came this came from, but I, I really want to answer this. <laughs> ask this question: Veal Parmesan or chicken Parmesan? Oh, definitely veal. <laughs> definitely veal. <laughs> nice, nice. I love them both. So, it's what so is hard. the best Cheers. green feature? Last question. I think it, it ultimately comes down to the building envelope for me. Yeah. Yeah. Just ensuring you've got a, a secure building envelope with limited leakage. Because no matter what you do, at the end of the day, if your building's leaking, it's not going to matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, that was awesome. That was yeah. a great conversation. Uh, we we appreciate you coming uh, out to the to the East End to the offices of uh, Bullpen Research and Consulting, the uh, spacious offices of, <laughs> of Bullpen Consulting. So, you know, tell us, you know, if someone wants to find you, you know, what's what's the website? You know, are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook? LinkedIn? Where, where do you where, where do you go to find you? www.cachehomes. I've got a LinkedIn account. Not a, not a social media guy. I try to avoid it Good. at all costs. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> it's that's I think that's becoming the smart move, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I think I think a lot of people think I'm a complete ass just by you my are. Twitter account. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, thank you so much. This thank you guys. I appreciate you doing this. And yeah, uh, no, it's been good catching up with both you guys. I appreciate the opportunity awesome. to come and chat. Yeah.